You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. So let's just move forward and proceed with today's lecture. We are very fortunate to have a, a great lecture by uh, Ben Nathans. Um, Kathy, did you want to introduce Ben? Sure, sure. Do you want me to thanks, just go thanks. ahead and do that? Yes, please. And we will okay. then launch. So thanks a lot. Yeah, everybody. I think maybe Fran should do it, but I'd be happy to do it as well. Um, okay. So uh, I, I, unfortunately, I've never met Ben in person. We've had a very nice email exchange. Uh, not only is he doing this lecture, but he's also going to be um, visiting my uh, undergraduate class virtually to talk about another uh, piece of writing that he's done. So he is a um, the Alvin... Alan Charles Coors Endowed Term Associate Professor of History at the University of Pennsylvania. That's a real mouthful. Um, and uh, has been extremely prolific. He is probably known to many of us for the articles that he writes for the, um, uh, the New York Review of Books uh, and also for his uh, scholarly writing, uh, the, the, um, uh, um, the book Beyond the Pale, The Jewish Encounter with Late Imperial Russia, uh, seems to have won every prize in the, in the, that's, that's around there. So that's really wonderful. Um, and he's currently at work on a book that I think is related to uh, his talk here. Uh, uh, it has the same title, To the Success of Our Hopeless Cause, uh, The Many Lives of the so Soviet Dissident Movement. Um, he did his graduate work at uh, Berkeley, um, and I think has been at Penn for most of his uh, career. Uh, so with that, I'll let him take over and we're all very much looking forward to uh, the presentation. Thank you, Kathy. Um, can you all hear me in, in the room and on Zoom? Great, okay. Terrific. So I want to apologize uh, for the last minute change format. I was all set to carry the great honor of being a first in-person lecturer in your series. Um, since March 2020, uh, the beginning of the pandemic era, but American Airlines and thunderstorms in Philly conspired against me. So I, I apologize for falling back on Zoom, but it's good to have it. And I also wanna thank Kathy for inviting me um, to this event and, and later in, in the fall to visit her class and to uh, Jennifer Tischler, who uh, fielded about a thousand phone calls, frantic phone calls from me today from the airport as I tried to figure out what I was going to do. So um, the title of the talk is indeed the title of the book uh, that I am supposed to finish by December 31st. I think I'm going to make it. It's called uh, To the Success of Our Hopeless Cause, The Many Lives of the Soviet Dissident Movement. And those of you who've been around um, Madison for a while may have been there when I gave a talk at sort of the beginning of this project a few years ago about the origins of the movement having to do with um, the trial of the writers uh, Andrei Sinyavsky and Yuli Daniel, the fallout from that, the development of uh, the strategy of legal dissent that is trying to hold the Soviet government to its own laws uh, which I call a form of civil obedience, uh, insisting on the observance of the law to the letter, and how this sparked the first transparency meeting, uh, or glassnest meeting, in 1965, that by convention, and, and I accept this convention, marks the birth of the dissident movement in the Soviet Union. In general, the ambition of my book is to show Soviet dissidents as uh, products of the Soviet system, that is to not see them as um, avatars or offshoots of Western liberalism, people who in terms of their worldviews could have been parachuted across the Iron Curtain from the West, but rather to see how Soviet dissent is a heresy that emerges from Soviet orthodoxy. This is what I think, what I hope is the, uh, the novelty of my approach. I'm certainly not the first to write on this subject it was heavily covered in real time, including by some very insightful observers, journalists, people uh, who lived through and in some cases participated in the movement as it was unfolding. So 
assuming that there are a lot of academics in this audience, but not only, um, I want to talk about the moment when I achieved my necessary analytical distance from my subjects. It was not easy because dissidents have been prolific producers of memoirs. There are over 150 book-length published memoirs by dissidents. And that's a very high proportion because it was a rather small movement. I don't think any other movement in modern history has produced such a high proportion of memoirs by participants. And those are a goldmine uh, for people like me, but they're also uh, a tricky source to deal with because you can very easily fall into a kind of echo chamber within the world that these memoirs conjure. And the moment that I think I sort of achieved my analytical distance from my protagonists was in I, when I realized that despite the centrality of this legal approach of, of law-abiding, rule of law, get the Soviet government to honor its own constitution and its own code of criminal procedure, despite that, the dissident movement itself resisted formal rules of any kind. It resisted any formal assigning of roles within the movement, any forms of hierarchy or authority within the movement. It was profoundly anarchic in many ways. And I, I say this not as a gotcha moment, as if I have revealed something dastardly about the dissidents that they didn't reveal about themselves, but just as a preface to what I'm gonna talk about today, which is what kind of a movement was this actually? Is this a movement of a new type? Or can we relate it to other uh, social movements in the late 20th century? Is something like a social movement even possible under conditions of late Soviet socialism? And by that, I mean the post-Stalinist sort of post-totalitarian variety. And if it is, what kind of movement are we talking about? So I'm treating this as a subset of a broader problem, which is how citizens who live in authoritarian societies conceive and set on options for political engagement. So let's begin at the beginning. How does a social movement like this come into being? Or how do social movements in general come into being? What drives their evolution? And can we identify what actually moves in a movement and with what consequences? It seems to me that the persistence of the totalitarian model in Western thinking about the USSR has not done us any favors when it comes to this kind of question. In fact, it hasn't really helped us even recognize this question as potentially relevant to the Soviet case. And the persistence of the totalitarian model or its revival uh, in the 1990s, thanks in part to my uh, former late teacher, Martin Malia, this largely explains why the study of social movements and their younger, more fashionable cousins, social networks, has really begun to animate scholarly research on the Soviet Union and other socialist countries. So let me remind you that social movements in Western societies have been important vehicles for transforming public policies and cultural norms in the 20th century. In the second half of that century, rights-based movements in particular became the dominant idiom for a wide range of public causes. But there's disagreement, whether you talk to historians or sociologists or anybody else, over whether the movements that emerged after the Second World War really mark a genuinely new phase in the long history of popular mobilization. And those who argue in the affirmative that they really are something new claim that the shift to a post-industrial economy diluted class consciousness to such an extent that the old Marxist paradigm of class-based movements, most workers' movements, would have to advance the economic interests of their participants that this model or this paradigm simply no longer applied. And the argument goes that whether you're talking about the civil rights movement or the feminist movement, the student movement, the environmental movement, the peace movement, the gay rights movement, all of these, which flourished especially in the 1960s, but not only then, these have all focused on identities and values, on alternative ways of living, and on eliminating discrimination. In other words, they've focused on culture and law 
rather than on the redistribution of material resources. And if you follow this line of reasoning, it means that these kinds of movements require novel ways of analyzing everything from how they recruit to how they use their resources and to what their leadership structures look like. The opponents of this view argue that working class movements and other movements going back to the 19th century already had their own cultural and legal agendas, including the promotion of new identities and values that were at odds with those of bourgeois society. And they deny that there's really any significant differences uh, between this pre and post World War II history of social movements, arguing instead that we should really be thinking about a continuum of practices in the long run. Now, it's not my brief today to resolve this particular example of what seems to be this interminable contest between change and continuity. But what I'd like to do is use some of its conceptual tools in order to more sharply observe the evolution of the Soviet dissident movement as it evolved from a chain reaction of protest sparked by that transparency meeting in 1965. Uh, and the chain reaction involved protests against a whole series of political trials of nonconformists. The evolution from the chain reaction to something really starts to look like an actual movement. And from there, surprisingly, evolves, or you might say devolves, into a series of much smaller activist groups that look a lot like a kind of peculiar Soviet version of an NGO. So it seems to me that if the transition from an industrial to a post-industrial society did in fact alter the form and the composition and the tactics of social movements, then surely the equally momentous shift from capitalism to socialism must have had a similarly deep impact. And just as the post-Stalin leadership of the Soviet Union was testing the removal of mass terror from its repertoire of governing practices. So certain Soviet citizens were abandoning armed and revolutionary methods of resistance, which persisted for at least a decade after the Second World War, instead groping way towards what the sociologist Charles Tilley called a new repertoire of contention. And in fact, it was the Kremlin's renunciation of mass terror that made that search for a new repertoire of contention possible. Repertoires of contention, as Tilly showed in his many works, evolve over time in dialogue with the society they seek to change. And in the modern era, those repertoires have tended to expand from the episodic to the local, to the sustained, and the national, indeed at times to the global. These repertoires have become more autonomous from existing structures of authority and more modular in the sense of being deployable by a variety of actors to achieve a variety of goals. Repertoire of contention are also conditioned by the life ways of those who practice them, including their assumptions about what, or, what does, does or does not constitute legitimate collective action. Movements adopt certain tactics, not simply because they consider them effective, but because the chosen tactics affirm a certain sense of self. Social movements exhibit a variety of organizational arrangements. In fact, they often display a tendency to experiment actively with structure and form. My question is, do such movements, and in particular, does the Soviet dissident movement practice within its own milieu the kind of arrangements that it seeks to promote in society at large? Legalism, or rights defense, the strategy of getting the Soviet state to observe its own laws, this was the grand strategy of the dissident movement as invented by the mathematician Alexander Volpin, along with other rights defenders. But that strategy of legalism dictated neither the specific tactics, apart from obviously avoiding illegal behavior, nor a specific organizational form. 
even as rights defenders sought to induce the Soviet state to abide by formal laws and procedures, they proved notably resistant to formalizing their own activities, whether that was by establishing an organization, defining distinct work roles, codifying membership, establishing leadership. They shunned formal procedures, not simply because doing any of those things might've made them more vulnerable to repression by the KGB, but because when it came to their own movement, they were anti-formalists. And given the long-standing and well-known preeminence of highly personalized forms of power in Russian and Soviet political culture, I think we should not be surprised to discover similar preferences in the dissident milieu. The backstory to this is the gradual eclipse in the period before 1965 of Marxism-Leninism as the dominant inspiration for oppositional activity in the USSR. As strange as it sounds, up until the mid-1960s, the single most important body of thought for dissenting behavior in the Soviet Union was Marxism-Leninism. I would argue that this is a sign of the continuing intellectual vitality of Marxism-Leninism, that it could inspire so many underground cells. I don't think they have really rose to the level of a movement, but it's also a sign, maybe a hidden sign, that the, the Russian Revolution had really finally run out of gas by the mid-1960s, when Marxism-Leninism ceased to be the leading ideological engine of dissenting behavior and was eclipsed by legalism. This obviously didn't happen on a single day or even in a single year, but I think there's a lot of evidence that there was this eclipse that happened thanks to people like Volpin and his disciples. And one of the things that got eclipsed along with the ideological content of Marxism-Leninism as a source of revolutionary uh, opposition was the institutional forms that it typically took. And these were underground, sometimes armed, sometimes not, revolutionary spells. It was the conspiratorial mindset so prominent in the history of Bolshevism itself that it had been passed on through classroom after classroom of Soviet students who imbibed uh, the glorious history of the Bolshevik movement before it came to power, and who in many cases reproduced that in these underground cells, whether it was in the 1930s, 1940s, or 1950s. A century before the eclipse of Marxism-Leninism as an oppositional strategy, this conspiratorial mindset, as you all know, had fascinated and repulsed Fyodor Dostoevsky, who had captured that mindset in such works as Notes from Underground and The Devils. Lenin came along and repurposed the underground conspiratorial mindset, fashioning it into what he called a party of a new type. This vanguard of professional revolutionaries dedicated neither to terrorism nor to winning elections, but to forging the consciousness of Russia's still embryonic working class and turning it into a fighting force that was capable of smashing the autocracy. And during the first half of Soviet history, political opposition under the Communist Party, to the extent that it existed at all, by and large replicated this Bolshevik model of underground conspiracy. In the post-Stalin era, it's the rejection of this underground model um, that is inseparable from the waning of neo-Leninism and the turn to legalism and transparency uh, for which the dissident movement became famous. So this is a movement that is built initially on face-to-face -face communities. And this is what I spoke about last time, I forget, four or five years ago. That is ties of friendship, deep ties of friendship among adults, the kind of sociability that really made this movement possible or made, made its launching possible beginning in 1965. And face-to-face -face communities do not require formal rules. In fact, they thrive on the absence of formal rules. So during the period of this chain reaction, which is roughly 1965 to 1968, when asked in courtrooms as defendants or witnesses or over kitchen tables in Moscow 
or Leningrad or Kiev or elsewhere uh, apartments, why they took part in public demonstrations or why they signed their names and sometimes their addresses to petitions or open letters of protest. Activists invariably invoked the same categorical imperative. Quote, I simply could not desert my friend at such a moment. Or it was in defense of my friends, I couldn't stay at it. Or friendship has always been the most important thing in life for me, this is why I went. Or it feels terrible to be at liberty when your friends are in prison. The question was, what would happen when those arrested or those who went to the square to defend them were not friends or even acquaintances? This was the challenge to the emerging movement during the uh, phase of the chain reaction. How to expand these bonds of friendship into something wider with more public solidarity and people willing to defend the minimal and widely shared demand that the Soviet society, that Soviet, I'm sorry, the Soviet state abide by its own laws, even when friends were not involved. What repertoire of contention would such a movement adopt and would it impose on itself an analogous demand to abide, to abide by impersonal rules of conduct? So let me just remind you of some of the chronology of uh, the chain reaction. As I said, it begins with the trial of Sinyavsky and Daniel, which inspires a series of protests. Protesters are arrested. They are put on trial. Trials beget more protests. Protests start to beget open letters. It's, it's this almost biblical generation after generation of protest involving petitions, open letters, arrests, demonstrations, trials over and over again. And at its maximum extent, in the spring of 1968, we know of over a thousand people who had signed these group petitions. They were known as the Podpisanti, the signers. Nobody was directing this activity. It was really a, a sort of spontaneous combustion of activism. And we know that the KGB was extremely frustrated by its inability to put a stop to the chain reaction because the, the PR was exactly opposite of what they were seeking. And by the spring of 1968, dissidents in Moscow began to express an interest in regularizing these activities and giving them some structure. Certain people, such as Pavel Litvinov, the 28-year-old uh, in 1968, he was 28-year-old, um, I guess you could call him an adjunct instructor of physics. He happens to be uh, the grandson of Maxim Litvinov, uh, one of Stalin's foreign ministers. He starts holding visiting hours. So every Tuesday, if you want to drop into his apartment on uh, Lixay Tolstoy Street, every Tuesday evening, you can catch up on the latest news, read the latest samizdat, and trade ideas with other dissidents. And other dissidents claim other days or evenings of the week for their visiting hours. They call them priyomnyedni. This was strictly drop-in basis. So large numbers of people would participate. There began to be talk of founding a Samizdat periodical to regularize the flow of information so that people outside Moscow could have the same access to the latest news about what the movement or what the chain reaction was up to. And there was even talk of establishing an organization. The idea was to harness the energy of the chain reaction which consisted mostly of members of the intelligentsia with a smattering of workers and students, to harness that en energy into a movement with a structure and with leaders. For opponents of this plan, and Lithinov was one of them, he didn't want things to go beyond these informal drop-in sessions. For opponents of the idea of establishing an organization, the moral force of all of these protests depended on their being propelled exclusively by individual free will, unmediated by organizations and hierarchies. The only acceptable form of obligation was that that emerged within the individual conscience. The means deployed by the dissident movement in Litvinov's opinion and that of others were just as important as the ends. The means were to get people to stop going through the motions dictated by the lip service state. 
or what Steve Kotkin famously called speaking Bolshevik, to get people to stop speaking this way, to abandon double think, double speak, and instead act according to their conscience. That was both the means and the ends. And beyond questions of conscience stood an inbred aversion to the ubiquitous badgering by the party state, this incessant reminding of Soviet citizens that they should contribute to a collective mission of building communism. In the dissident movement, there shouldn't be any mobilizing, no rooting, no external pressure to sign letters or attend meetings or to adopt a certain specific role within the movement. Litvinov recalled uh, several years later, I never collected signatures. I resisted the whole, look, I signed, so you should sign too argument. Another uh, advocate of not organizing the movement and keeping it at the level of a chain reaction uh, was a woman named Ludmila Alekseyeva, who at the time was an ex-party member and a professional editor. She wrote that after 16 years of being a member of the Communist Party, quote, I didn't want to be anyone's subordinate or anyone's superior. I wanted to reserve the right to pick the people with whom I worked, end quote. So it wasn't just a matter of rejecting the oppressive hierarchy and structure of the Communist Party, it was also about rejecting hierarchy and structure as such. Activism should merge spontaneously within each individual, allowing the chain reaction to chart its own course. Only that kind of movement, Litvinov and Alekseyeva and Natalia Garbanevskaya, the poet, Larisa Bogoraz, a linguist, soon to be the ex-wife of Yuli Daniel, only that kind of movement, they argued, could produce the transformation of consciousness that Alexander Volpin had imagined at the beginning of this whole process, namely a revolution in the way revolutions are made. A movement of this new type required human personalities of a new type. And I think you can sense maybe a little bit now what I mean by the dissidents were thoroughly Soviet people. So positions were clarified in this argument between the advocates of greater organization and the advocates of continued spontaneous action, but there was no meeting of minds between the two. And the only thing that actually got decided in the spring of 1968, thanks to the initiative of Garbanevskaya, the poet, was to launch a bi-monthly newsletter uh, for this group of people called the Chronicle of Current Events. Shortly thereafter, Litvinov and uh, Larisa Bogoraz issued what they called an appeal to world public opinion. And one of the people who read this document outside the Soviet Union was the British poet Stephen Spender, who you may know is one of the contributors to the, uh, the anthology of autobiographical essays called The God That Failed. And Spender took it upon himself to assemble uh, a statement of support by more than a dozen renowned artists and intellectuals in the West. They included W.H. Auden, Mary McCarthy, uh, the violinist Yehudi Menuhin, the widow of George Orwell, Sonia Bronnell, Bertrand Russell, Igor Stravinsky, and others. And they saw one sentence telegram, Bogoraz and Litvinov, that said, we, a group of friends representing no organization, support your statement, admire your courage, think of you, and will help in any way possible. Turns out the telegram was not delivered to its uh, address, but it was read over the BBC shortwave radio service. And so Litvinov and Bogoraz and probably tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of Soviet citizens heard it that way. Litvinov decided to respond to Spender and smuggled out a private letter via a Dutch journalist. In this letter, he elaborated his views in real time of this rapidly forming protest movement in the USSR. He described it as, quote, diffuse and amorphous. He said it had not yet developed sufficiently clear goals beyond the struggle for human rights and the humanization of Soviet society. And he speculated that perhaps in the future, the movement, quote, take on more concrete organizational forms, but this would un undoubtedly increase our difficulties. What he argued was most urgent was the creation of an international committee outside the Soviet Union, whose task it would be to support the democratic movement inside the USSR. Its members could include progressive writers 
scholars and artists like the ones who had signed the statement organized by Spender. As long as they steer cleared of any anti-communist or anti-Soviet sentiment. So his proposed international committee, as he put it to Spender, could take on all the practical work of maintaining contacts with the democratic movement in the Soviet Union. It would help defend members of that movement subject to persecution for their social or literary activities. It would serve as a clearinghouse for links to other international organizations. It would keep world public opinion informed about the situation in the USSR. And it, was, it would help coordinate the publication of all manner of uncensored manuscripts. In other words, samizdat-texts abroad. And in the process, it might help protect the authors of those texts against copyright infringement and the loss of royalties that normally happened when such texts were published by Western uh, publishers. An amazing amount of what Litvinov proposed in this letter actually came to be. So in 1969, the Dutch journalist that had smuggled it out, Karl van het Reve, uh, who actually was a professor of Slavic literature uh, in, in his real job, but had taken a sabbatical year to cover events in Moscow, he joined forces with the Dutch historian uh, Jan Willem Bezemer and the British sociologist Peter Redaway to establish the Alexander Herzen Foundation in Amsterdam, which was dedicated to publishing in Russian important samizdat were um, out of the Soviet Union. And by pr producing definitive versions of these texts that were explicitly authorized by their creators, the Herzen Foundation inaugurated an important shift, at least outside the USSR, away from the unregulated, uncompensated forms of reproduction characteristic of samizdat and tamizdat in favor of securing copyrights and royalties for authors. And three years after that, the British Slavicist Michael Scammell, who you may know is the author of biographies of Solzhenitsyn and Arthur Kessler, founded a journal called Index on Censorship, which was devoted to censored works from the Soviet Union and other non-democratic countries. So no less remarkable was the division of labor outlined in Litvinov's letter. It, you might be tempted to look at this letter as a call to globalize this emerging Soviet civil rights movement. But in my view, what the letter is actually proposing is the outsourcing of the movement's formal organization work to entities beyond the Iron Curtain. And consistent with his critique of those who advocated greater organization by the movement itself, turning the chain reaction into an actual uh, formal organization, Litvinov was really trying to shield dissidents from all forms of hierarchy and institutional pressure so that they could allow to continue functioning as free radicals powered solely by the, in, by the internal dictates of conscience. I mentioned at the beginning of my talk, uh, the abundance of dissident memoirs, many of which, actually the lion's share of which appeared before the Soviet collapse. Understandably, there is a powerful reticence in those memoirs against airing dirty laundry in public and in particular uh, publicizing divisions within the movement because of the danger that could have resulted uh, from doing that. So you will not find a lot of evidence of intramural conflicts within the movement in the pre-1991 uh, literature of, of uh, uh, memoir literature by dissidents. Meanwhile, most of the Western observers of the Soviet dissident movement, and there were a lot for obvious reasons, uh, while the Soviet Union was still a going concern, Western observers were seemingly obsessed with political taxonomies of the movement, counting the number of liberals, counting the number of social democrats, counting the nationalists, creating these political categories for people uh, to, to weigh the relative strength of these different worldviews. It's the post-1991 first-person accounts of dissidents that are, have gradually uh, provided glimpses of these intramural conflicts, supplemented, I add, by um, the not inconsiderable uh, quantity of materials from the KGB archives of the former Soviet republics, which include um, transcripts of uh, from listening devices and, and all of these office hours that the dissidents were holding, these priomni dni, 
there were always moles or there were always listening devices. So um, Yuri Andropov, as head of the KGB, was constantly getting information from his agents on the ground about what people were talking about and what questions were animating them and what, what new Samizdat had appeared. And there are transcripts of literally of Litvinov saying at a gathering on a Tuesday evening in his apartment that I'm quoting here from one of these KGB reports, at the current time, we are searching for new forms of our activism and we have not excluded demonstrations and strikes. They intended to continue with protest letters uh, because they are a very effective way of reaching a broader public. But they reject not only Bolshevism, but Bolshevik methods. So abundant evidence that there's a kind of experimental atmosphere here of trying, trying new methods out. And this search for new forms of activism, or as Tilly would say, for new repertoires of protest, was inseparable from the forms of sociability within the movement. And specifically, they were about whether it was going to remain an essentially face-to-face -face community of personal friends or expand into something wider but thinner. So in the decade after Stalin's death, the dissemination of oppositional leaflets, and these are often a single piece of paper, many times handwritten, denouncing this or that aspect of Soviet policy or the Soviet order, this practice was so common that I've actually found in the archives printed forms that the KGB, KGB printed for its officers with boxes to check how many Listovki in this city and in this month. They were keeping very detailed records of this genre of oppositional activity. In the early 1960s, it was not unusual for more than a million such leaflets to be discovered in any given year. Some of them, it's true, were dropped from hot air balloons sent in from abroad, courtesy of the CIA or other intelligence services, but a lot of them were also homemade. And they were known as either listovki or anonimki, that is anonymous um, leaflets. These would sometimes be stuffed in people's mailboxes in the entryways of their apartments where they would be left on benches in metro stations or in parks occasionally dropped en masse from the balconies of department stores and other populated spaces. And from the dissident's point of view, the problem with these anonymous leaflets as a, as a communicative technique was that they failed to spark dialogue, much less form communities of the like-minded. Unlike Samizdat text, which typically traveled by networks of friends, leaflets reached readers more or less randomly, untethered from any social network. And unlike consumers of Samizdat, readers of leaflets almost never reproduce them and pass them on to others. So rights activists, the people that I am interested in, they associated leaflets with things like graffiti and anonymous letters. These were vehicles for what the Russians called kramola, or popular grumbling, discontent, often expressed in very pungent, obscene language, um, but not the vehicle for uh, a rule of law movement. So the data that uh, we have shows a precipitous decline by more than 50% in the use of the technique of anonymous leaflets in the first half of the 1960s. And I think this parallels the decline of neo-Leninism as the leading idiom of popular opposition. And by the 1970s, um, most anonymous leaflets were produced by individuals or groups who were threatening terrorist activity or other, other violent attacks. Within the emerging dissident movement, there was a virtually universal consensus in favor of nonviolence and legality as the only acceptable exit ramps from Stalinism. But within this consensus, there were vigorous debates about the efficacy of demonstrations versus group letters versus uh, sorry, demonstrations versus group letters, transparency versus secrecy, openly demanding freedom of speech versus simply enacting freedom of speech by engaging in samizdat. Carefully order, uh, organized demonstrations, for example, even if they were small, had often proven their ability uh, beyond the events themselves to spark conversations about constitutional rights and the rule of law and to breathe new life into the iconic act of civic courage known as going to the square. But as with leaflets, there was a certain random quality, not to say accidental quality, 
to the audience for demonstrations. So Pavel Litvinov's aunt, a generation older, Tatiana Litvinova, who participated in a couple of demonstrations uh, in the late 1960s, she, to her, the whole thing seemed, and here I quote, childish, unwise, as pointless as it is innocuous. To whom are they addressing their demands? Nobody knows. Older activists tended to be skeptical about the value of going to the square. When you're over 40, as Ludmila Alexeyeva admitted, the act of shouting slogans in the streets loses its allure. And it didn't help to express those slogans in the form of written slogans either, because as she put it, what we had to say could not be reduced to slogans. So for most middle-aged text-centric members of the intelligentsia, a carefully composed open letter circulated via samizdat, or what I would call epistolary dissidents, was the preferred genre. Open letters and other samizdat texts were designed to be individually reproduced on a, on a scale that made trying to confiscate them, as the KGB did, into a fruitless game of whack-a-mole. And such letters often made a deep impression, not only for their publicly critical stance, but because they often featured signatures by individuals from multiple cities and multiple professions, which was a combination not typically seen in published group letters to the editor of Soviet newspapers where everybody came from the same factory or from the same workplace. So here too, the question of address C was a source of trouble. Because even when the letters had a specific addressee, whether it was the procurator, Roman Rudyenko, or the chairman of the Council of Ministers, Alexei Kasigin, or the general secretary of the Communist Party, Leonid Brezhnev, or members of the Supreme Court or the Central Committee or whatever, whoever's name stood on the letter, a familiar nagging question reappeared. To whom are we appealing? This is the question that the literary critic Raisa Arlova asked in her diary, to whom are we appealing? To whom are we sending these letters and telegrams? To those for whom Yevgenia Ginsburg, that's the author of the Gulag memoir, Krutoy uh, Marshrut, Into the Whirlwind, are we, are we addressing these letters to those people who Ginsburg washed floors for in Kalima? Are we waiting until this belief too crushed? And similarly, the geneticist Raisa Berg, asked, we are pretending to believe, this is in a letter to Andrei Sakharov, that there is someone to whom we could appeal for help, when in fact we know perfectly well that we are addressing our grievances about the evil spirit to the evil spirit. So none of these accepted literary or epistolary techniques was entirely satisfying. There was the notion of collecting mass numbers of signatures on a petition. There was precedent for this in Soviet history in the form of the Stockholm Declaration of the 1950s, which was a mass petition organized by a French nuclear scientist, but promoted heavily uh, by Stalin against nuclear war. And whatever you make of this number, over 100 million Soviet citizens signed. This made an impression on certain dissidents, including uh, the former general Pyotr Grigoryenko, who came up with a plan on his own to mimic this and to produce a mass petition. But the dissident movement rejected this technique, just like they rejected strikes, work stoppages, pickets, civil disobedience, boycotts, and public processions. I think this was a sign of their estrangement from the Soviet population, but also of their commitment to strictly legal, faultlessly legal techniques. As you know, striking in the Soviet Union was illegal, and civil disobedience is by definition illegal. So more than anything else, more than the human beings who periodically gathered in public squares in major Soviet cities, the thing that moved in the dissident movement were texts. Its central activity, and the only one, I believe, that actually achieved truly mass proportions, the one that required a new word to describe it, was Samizdat. It may or may not be true that, that the Soviet population was, as they used to say, the most 
actively reading people in the world. But what we know for sure is that Soviet people typed and copied more than any other people in the world. This is what made Samizdat possible. There was never really a resolution, and I wanna try to come to a close now so that we have enough time for Q&A. There was never a winner in the argument between those who favored the spontaneous uh, acts of conscience in the form of the chain reaction versus those who favored organization. I think a strong case could be made, I try to make it in my book, that that particular contest was yet another iteration of this seemingly age-old Russian way of dividing activism between spontaneity and consciousness, a distinction that was introduced by the populists in the middle of the 19th century, especially Pyotr Lavrov, and then uh, made famous in Lenin's pamphlet of 1902, What is to be Done? I, I think this is another version of that, in, of course, in a different era and involving different actors. The point was that neither side ever won the debate on its merits, but one side won the debate de facto, and that's because the people who believed in conscience were the kind of people who demonstrated on Red Square against the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. So it's not so much that they lost the debate, it's that they got themselves all arrested. They were essentially removed from the debate, and as a result, the pro-organization folks won. And beginning in 1969, we have the founding of the first dissident organization. It begins as a proposal to form a committee in the defense of Pyotr Grigoryenko himself, who was arrested in Tashkent in the spring of 69, attempting to, to attend the trial of Crimean Tatars. But very quickly, as other dissidents are arrested in that crackdown, people shift from thinking, oh, let's have a committee in defense of X to something much more ambitious. And it's a dissident, a dissident uh, an economist named Viktor Krasin, who comes up with the idea of founding a committee for the defense of civil rights in the Soviet Union. For lack of time, I'm not going to go into the history of this movement uh, and its founding, except to tell you that the manner by which it was founded confirmed the worst nightmares of the advocates of pure conscience. And that's because Krasin and his uh, I, won't, I won't call him a sidekick, his, his fellow leader, Pyotr Yikir, both of them gulag survivors, by the way, engaged in unconscionable behavior when they created this organization, putting the names of people as members in their first written document who had not actually ever heard of the organization and who had not been asked in advance. They transmitted the very first statement by the what they called the Initiative Group for the Defense of Civil Rights to Western journalists, a plea to the UN to monitor Soviet compliance with its own rights norms without asking permission from the majority of people who were listed as members of that group. Scandalous. But not only scandalous, it also suggests that even the pro-organization folks were practitioners of this long history of uh, spontaneity and informality that we find across the board in Russian political culture. Uh, again, this is something that sociologists have done uh, terrific work on. This, this, uh, what um, the, some some of the best of them call this embeddedness of informality in in Russian political culture. But we see it appearing even on the side that won the organization debate in the dissident movement. So, the initiative group is the first founded in 1969 but it's followed by the founding of the Human Rights Committee in Moscow with Andrei Sakharov and Valery Chalidze and others, which is sort of a, a, a hyper formal organization. It actually has a charter and statutes and they use Robert's rules of order, even though the meetings usually only consist of three people. And there are lots of jokes about this in the dissident movement, this sort of obsession with order and formalism. By 1973, uh, the first branch of Amnesty International has been founded on the other side of the Iron Curtain by a dozen or so uh, dissidents in Moscow. And most famously, of course, in 1975, the Helsinki Watch Groups are founded in Moscow and Kiev, Vilnius, uh, um, Tbilisi, Baku, to monitor compliance with the Helsinki Accords. None of these, however, 
are remotely like anything that I would call a social movement. So it's a strange history of evolving from a chain reaction to a social movement, but then under the pressure of this contest between the two sides within the movement, and also of course, external pressure from the KGB and a certain estrangement from Soviet society, it doesn't burgeon into a mass social movement. Many people retreat from activism and those who are left form a series of what you might call NGOs, but they're not your garden variety NGOs because they don't mediate between Soviet society and the Soviet state. They barely have a toehold in Soviet society, even if they assume that they are speaking uh, on behalf of the silent millions. And furthermore, because they get no response from the Soviet state, their addressee becomes the United Nations and a series of NGOs in the West, preeminent among them Amnesty International itself. So this is a very strange breed of NGO that we're talking about here. And I don't think we should rush to the civil society movement, uh, I'm sorry, the civil society model that was so popular in the 1990s as a form of explanation of what dissident movements in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union were up to. So powerful was the civil society model that a lot of dissidents who produced memoirs in the 1990s and afterwards adopted it as their own. But I don't think it really fits. These were not mediating bodies. These were bodies in retreat from what had tried to become a social movement and that were now mediating between the dissidents themselves and their interlocutors abroad. I don't think I need to tell this group of how many parallels there are to what is going on in Russia today with the inability, even of someone like Navalny, uh, a magnetic figure, to form a real sustained social movement. And yes, much of the problem for him and his fellow activists is repression from the state, but a significant part of the problem is the sense among so many of the Russian population that politics is dirty business and that citizens do not need to be active in NGOs or other political formations. I'm gonna stop there. Thank you for your attention. Again, apologies for the Zoom format instead of something more personal, but I look forward to the Q&A and your discussion and feedback. Thank you.